Good evening. How's everyone doing tonight? Hope you're doing well. Hope you got some sleep, got some nap, got a rest, had some coffee maybe. Anyways, <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here again with you tonight. Uh, if you remember this morning, we were in Luke chapter 18. Well, tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, staying in the book of Luke tonight. And I think that uh, what I wanted to do is sort of, well, I talked to you this morning about the Pharisee and the publican, Jesus' uh, parable of their prayers as they went to the temple. But to give you an even greater story about how amazing that display of grace and salvation is, I want to show you a story also of just how great a salvation it is that that publican went away justified rather than the other, as it says there in verse 14 of Luke 18. Because tonight I wanted to talk to you about the story of Zacchaeus. If you remember, he was a tax collector. He was a publican. But before we get there, how many of you remember the story of Bernie Madoff? Do you remember Bernie Madoff? Back from 2008, back when a lot of the, the bubbles were bursting on the housing market and such, there was a guy named Bernie Madoff, and it's back in 2008, they uncovered his Ponzi scheme, which was the largest Ponzi scheme ever discovered, ever uncovered in U.S. history. Bernie Madoff had started a financial brokerage firm in the 1960s, and it quickly, quickly became very, very successful on Wall Street. He was very, very wealthy and very, very financially well-off. And he had employed his brother and his niece and his two sons with him in this endeavor. But one day his sons discovered their father's less than legal, so to speak, business ethics. And the FBI was quickly in, called to intervene. Madoff had began swindling money back in the 1990s and had ended up stealing billions of dollars from thousands of financial investors. And before he was through, he had accumulated $65 billion, with a B, $65 billion, which earned him 150 years in prison. And I think his story is truly a tragedy because just like the story of Achan in the Old Testament, Joshua 7, where his sin wasn't just his problem, it permeated outwards to his family, so too did Bernie Madoff's transgression. Madoff's crime didn't just affect him, but it filtered outward back to his family as well. It affected his whole life. His brother Peter was arrested and charged afterwards. One of his sons ended up committing suicide in the aftermath. And even he and his wife, Bernie Madoff and his wife, attempted suicide in the aftermath of this very public and illegal scandal that just, just had been uncovered. There was lots of shame and lots of, lots of bitterness, I'm sure, and lots of embarrassment. But at first glance, I think we read stories like this, and we read happenings like this, and we think that this guy got what he deserved. Justice was served. He got 150 years in prison. He got what was his due. Justice was served. But I wonder how the Lord Jesus might have treated this same individual. I'm not saying that we shouldn't give him justice, but I think it's interesting that what if we were in the same predicament? You know, we're given a glimpse of this very thing, I think, in Luke chapter 19. It is, this is what we find here, the familiar and timeless account of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Christ's interaction with Zacchaeus. You know, uh, look at verse Excuse me, verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number 10. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. 
And behold, there was a great man, or excuse me, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and he could not for the press, because he was of little stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when, he saw, and when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus enters into the city of Jericho, that magnificent city which had been rebuilt here by Herod the Great. And Luke's gospel includes really two interesting facts about Zacchaeus. First, it includes the fact that he was rich, and also the fact that he was short. Two interesting facts, I think. The Greek word for rich here literally means that he was abundant in wealth. He was just swimming in it. He was swimming in money, so to speak. He was just raking it in as he was working as the chief tax collector there at Jericho. But also, Zacchaeus is of little stature. I think it's interesting that it includes that. Just because I'm sure that had an effect on his personality. If you know, little dogs are the most loud animals probably that God has ever created. I grew up with little dogs and they're yappers and they like to think that they're a lot bigger than they are. Big do- or little dogs have a big sense of bravado. <laughs> they think that they are tough. And I think the same can be said sometimes of little people. <laughs> they think that they are a lot and they have to prove themselves. So really we could call the Napoleon complex a Zacchaeus complex. I think that's probably a little bit more accurate. I'm sure that this had an effect on him, being of little stature. But Zacchaeus, nevertheless, he sought the person of Jesus. He sought him. Look at verse 3, where it says, And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and he could not for the press, because he was of little stature. He sought to see Jesus. He was intrigued by this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and who he was. He craved just for a look at him, you know, to see if the rumors was true. Jesus had started his ministry, and he was gaining quite a following, quite a lot of popularity in the surrounding areas of Galilee. And I'm sure there were stories that were being told of him. Probably most of them weren't true. But he wanted to see who this miracle worker was, who this guy from Galilee was that was healing the lame and and healing the blind and giving them their sight and making the ones who were possessed by demons to to be whole again and to be healed. He wanted to see if the rumors were true, and perhaps he's heard of Jesus and his teachings and his, and his miracles and the sort of people that Jesus was hanging out with. We can say that curiosity really drove Zacchaeus here. He wasn't to see Jesus the Savior, just Jesus the person. But because of his short stature, he's not able to see this miracle man from Galilee, and so he climbs a tree. We know that, that famous story. And as Jesus passed by, Zacchaeus is seen in that tree, and he's given the command and an invitation. 
A command to come down and is an invitation that I'm coming to your house, Jesus says, to dine with you, to feast with you. And I'm sure that this invitation was surprising and, and shocking for the people that were around him. It was a shock in the air. You might have, you know, as the, as the saying goes, you might have heard a pin drop. <laughs> because this was a very audacious thing that Jesus did. First, we have to see that this is an extension of undeserved grace here, that Jesus extends to Zacchaeus undeserved grace. Amidst the crowds of faces there, as it says, that the, for the press, as it says, verse 3 again, uh, where it says, And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press. There was a mob of people. There was a large crowd of people surrounding Jesus, blocking him from view, from the view of Zacchaeus. And amidst this crowd of faces, Jesus sees Zacchaeus. I think one of the things that we can pull out from this is that God sees and God knows you. Everything about you, everything that you're going through, everything that you can ever imagine, Jesus knows. He knows He knows where his people are, and he knows where to find them. Even if you can't see Jesus, he knows where to find you. You may feel lost, and you may feel alone, but God sees. God knows. And he knows what need, he knows your need, and he knows that he will come through with his son. But going back to the text, Jesus offers to dine with Zacchaeus. And this is a very strange and unfamiliar display of of just grace and favor and just a display of such kindness and compassion that I'm sure it was so surprising to the people that were around. And I don't think we fully grasp just how vile and vicious Zacchaeus was. He was the tax collector, the publican of Jericho. Not only that, he was the chief publican, the chief tax collector of this city, with, offered him extreme wealth and extreme prestige and extreme power, but also extreme hatred. <laughs> he was hated by the people because he was literally taking money right from out of their pockets. <laughs> but not only that, you have to remember that these publicans were employed by the Roman government. They were employed by Rome, and therefore they were hated because they secured an occupying force in that city. So what the publicans were doing, they had secured the rights by Rome to raise taxes by having occupying force, and they were taxing the people to pay for that occupying force. It would be the equivalent of your neighbor raising taxes and taking your money to pay for the soldiers that were there responsible for the murder and rape and pillaging of your country. That's how much he was hated. That's how much he was just disliked. This hate was compounded, therefore, even more if you were Jewish. Imagine your own countrymen coming in and stealing from you and allowing the people and and paying off the people that were raping and pillaging and murdering and just destroying your city. And Zacchaeus was a Jew. He was hated. No one liked Zacchaeus. He, didn't ha- he probably didn't have very many friends. And so when Jesus offered to dine with him, this was a surprising display of grace. And when you read of Zacchaeus, you have to think of sort of that Bernie Madoff type character. He was hated by our public. He was a pariah. He was a social outcast. And even more than that, we have to think that Zacchaeus is sort of that on steroids. Even more than that, he was just viciously hated and scorned and derided by the people of Jericho because Zacchaeus was never arrested. 
He was riding high and, and he was uh, stealing from his own countrymen. But yet Zacchaeus was a piece of trash. A piece of trash. And he sold out his neighbors and his friends and his family for dollars. He was a piece of trash. And it's to this garbage of a man that Jesus comes and says, I want to dine with you, Zacchaeus. I want to come to your house and eat with you. And his invitation was certainly met with more contempt and more misunderstanding and more ridicule. Verse 7 And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that was a sinner. You know, it's not said here, but it's assumed that a lot of the people here were those famous Pharisees. Those guys who were always getting in the way, so to speak, of of Jesus extending his grace. They say elsewhere in Luke 15, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't understand why Jesus would be hanging out and and fellowshipping with this type of people, the outcast people. They thought that Jesus was disgracing himself by eating and and fellowshipping with these types of individuals. He was disgracing and discrediting and shaming himself. But Jesus had a reputation to associate with these types of people. He had a reputation for befriending the lonely and the worst of people. Luke 5, 30, 5 verse 30 says this, But there scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat with and drink with the publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Or Matthew eleven nineteen says this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, and a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of those who were outcast. He sought them, as we said this morning, because they most likely were the most familiar with how bad they were. Christ was ridiculed for being the friend of sinners, so to speak, but he turned that ridicule into a reminder of his redemption. You know, the end and the object of the gospel is the salvation of sinners. The gospel couldn't be any other thing if it were trying to save those who didn't need saving. The gospel didn't come to those people who knew or thought they were righteous. It came to those who knew they were sinners, because sinners are all that there are. God's grace comes down, and it comes first As uh, C.H. Spurgeon, he says this, that the eternal watcher is looking over the vast ocean of life, not that he may spy out the vessels which sail along proudly in safety, but that he may see those who are almost wrecks. He comes and he searches people who are almost wrecked, who are almost ruined, who actually in fact know that they are ruined by sin and the wreckage of their life. That's who Jesus comes to save. That's who Jesus comes to fellowship with. That's who Jesus comes to rescue. Not those who think they are sailing fine along the way, but those who know that they are wrecks. They are wrecked by sin. One old poem uh, likens Jesus to a hound of heaven. And it says that Jesus is the hound of heaven seeking out those who are lost. That's who Jesus is. He's the hound of heaven, the eternal watcher seeking the people who most need him. Jesus extends undeserved grace. And look also now at Zacchaeus' expression of unforced obedience. Look again back at the text. Verse 8. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. You see, while dining with Zacchaeus, Christ, uh, what, dining with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is brought to repentance. He's brought to repentance. Inevitably, I think he felt the guilt and the conviction of his life. He knew that he was a sinner, and these eyes of mercy, these eyes of love of the Lord Jesus melted his heart. They melted the heart of this tax collector, bringing him to confess his crimes and start the process of restoration. And Zacchaeus is so struck by, by Jesus' unconditional acceptance of him that he vows to repay all that he has stolen from his brethren. I like what he says, I'm going to pay it back fourfold. I'm going to restore everything that I took and more, four times as much. And he's not making a claim to sort of say, this is how I'm going to get God. He's saying that this is the sincerity of my confession. You see, first attracted to Jesus by curiosity, Zacchaeus is now brought to Jesus by grace. And Zacchaeus recognizes his wretchedness. And that's precisely when God's work starts to take effect, when we realize how wretched and wicked we are. Not when we think we have it together, but when we realize and recognize our lostness, as you could say. Recognizing our lostness is the first step towards being found. You know, admitting that there's a problem is the first step towards having the problem fixed. One writer says it this way, that grace only works with, on those who accept their lostness. And as I said this morning, that Jesus came to call real and true sinners to repentance, not the pseudo-righteous, not the people who are thinking that they got it all together. With real and lost and real sinners, Jesus comes to, re to restore and rescue. Refusing to own up to your desperation is to refuse the gospel. Refusing your desperation is to refuse the gospel. Jesus' work of grace and salvation can only come and it can only be truly understood when we realize our hopelessness and our lifelessness. And if you know that you are hopeless and you are lifeless, the gospel will mean everything to you. And if you don't think that you are hopeless and lost, if you think that you don't need the gospel, it won't mean anything to you. It won't mean anything to you. You'll come to service after service and not really make any change for God. You'll come and hear message after message and say, that's okay, I think I'm doing all right. As we looked at this morning, you'll come like the, pub, like the Pharisee, excuse me, and you'll come to God with your religious resume and not let the Holy Spirit make any change on your life because the gospel doesn't mean anything to you because you don't realize how lost you are. You don't realize how desperate we are because even after we're saved, we're still saved sinners. We're still people who need grace every single day. And I pray for it every morning. Because I know I'm going to stumble. <laughs> I know I'm going to fall and probably fall fat, flat on my face many times. But the pardon and conversion of Zacchaeus, I think, is a poignant and very important reminder of the sort of people that Jesus came to save. Those who are lost those who are outcasts, those who are desperate. This was Jesus' mission. This was Jesus' purpose here on earth. His calling card, you could say, is saving the lost. I like Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11 through 16, or verses 11 through 12 and 16. It says this, 
For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. I will seek that which was lost, that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. That's Jesus' mission. He is the searcher of lost sheep. He is the shepherd going after that one lamb. That one lamb might be you. And admitting that you're lost isn't reason for despair. Admitting that you're needy isn't admitting to a life full of grief and hardship. It's actually a reason for hope. Because Jesus came to save those who are lost and those who are needy. To admit otherwise is to say that you don't need God. Admitting that you are needy is the first step towards saying that I need God. And this offering of grace is sometimes disregarded. It's sometimes it's balked at, it's resisted. Because it seems unfair. Look at their reaction again. Look at verse 7. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that we like the idea of forgiveness until we have to give it out. The same sort of thing goes that we like the idea of grace until it's given to a person that we don't think deserves it. Sometimes I think that we like this idea of grace and unconditional acceptance and all that sort of thing until we, we have to actually give it and put it into practice. Until a person who we know should not get our love and we have to give it to them anyways... How could the criminal go free? How could the vile be clean? How could the sinner be a saint? How could the holy unite with the holy? Sometimes we think that. We think that, God, you're not being very fair right now. That person deserves justice. Guess what? You don't want God to be fair. You don't want God to be fair with you. We cry for justice and we cry for fairness Because we think we're all right. But if God were fair, we would be in the fires of hell already. We wouldn't even be here tonight. Because your only hope is in God's unfairness. (laughs) In God doling out to you the very opposite of what you deserve. That's grace. If God dealt justly with us, we would already be in hell for our sin and our rebellion. That's God being fair. The gospel, then, is the good news of God's gracious unfairness, so to speak, because that God has forever dealt unfairly with His Son so that He might deal graciously with you. That God the Father came to deal with us in righteous unfairness because He dealt with His Son in the same. He dealt on Him all that you were supposed to get so that He could give you all that His Son had. Jesus endured the brunt of God's undeserved justice so that we could enjoy the beauty of his undeserved grace. And I praise God for that. I don't want God to be fair. God, I like this one writer, he says it this way, God dealt with Jesus as a sinner in order that he might deal with us as righteous, perfectly, yea, infinitely righteous. He inflicted on him all that should have been inflicted on us in order that he might bestow upon us all that we should be, all that should be bestowed upon him. He does not ask us to pay for it or to endeavor to deserve it or to qualify ourselves for receiving it, but just that we could, we should consent to it. 
God comes and he says, I don't want you to try and buy your way in. I don't want you to try and earn your way in. I just want you to realize that my son has already finished the work for you. And you come and you can open that gift of salvation, as it says in Romans. A gift that's already been given to you in the Son of, in the son of God, Jesus Christ. You don't want God to be fair. Your only hope is in God's unfairness. And God dealing out abundant and, and absolute forgiveness to all those who recognize just how needy they are. Just as I imagine that Zacchaeus did in this passage. John 3 verse 17 says this, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God's forgiveness is for those who know that they are condemned already. And then when God saves and forgives and justifies that person, guess what title you bear? No condemnation. As it says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, God's economy, it isn't like ours. God's ethics, doesn't, his economy isn't like ours. He doesn't reward with us with grace because we're good. Because if that were the case, then he would be giving us a reward. He wouldn't be giving us grace. He doesn't give us more mercy because we read our Bible more, or because we're nice to others, or because we go to church on Sunday, or because we don't cheat on that exam. We should do those things. We shouldn't cheat on that exam. We should be nice to others. But that's not to sort of, so to speak, earn your way in, or buy your way in. That's what... Zacchaeus was showing here. He was showing unforced obedience. It's the expression of love. It's the expression of the change that has been done on his heart. I think we approach our relationship with God sometimes as if we're commissioned to sort of, sort of balance the scales of what Jesus has done. We sort of say, God, you have done all this, now I'm sort of going to pay it back to you. As if the Christian life was all about paying God back for, for his, his redemptive work. But this notion sort of props up the idea that our words and our actions and our, and our works are paying God off for his saving work on the cross. And that our deeds, they somehow bring us into a better standing with God. But you see, that's not what they're doing. Our works aren't, so to speak, paying God back as they are proving God's work. Your kindness... Your mercy with others, your forgiveness with others, your generosity with others, they're not paying God back, they're proving God's work. They're proving what he is doing in your life is true. They're proving that his Holy Spirit is working on your heart and is a work in progress. The best motivation for holy and righteous Christian living isn't force, it's not coercion, it's not regulation or law, it's love. Repentance and obedience flows naturally from a heart that's been gripped by the love of God. That when love is first shown, that love is then given. You see, love, it, it reaps love. Force and coercion and demand, they reap regret, sometimes bitterness, sometimes rebellion. You see, demanding love won't reciprocate love. Imagine trying that with your wife. Imagine if I told my wife, you love me. How do you think she's going to respond to that? I don't think that's going to go over well. I might be sleeping on the couch tonight if I were to try that. 
We don't demand love to try and get love. Biblical obedience is inspired by love. True love just gives. It's love that's given first that reaps love in in return. Unforced obedience is the natural result of unilateral love. Let me say that again. Unforced obedience is the natural result of unilateral love. The way we are inspired to obey God, the way we are inspired to sort of live the Christian life, is not by us sort of checking a list and by us forcing it onto others and all those sorts of things. It's by remembering God's love, just as we were in John 3.17, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Or 1 John 4, herein is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. That's where obedience is born, in the love of God. Just like Zacchaeus, he's torn and he's, he is made to obey God, not by God forcing him to return all this stuff that he has stolen, but by Jesus showing love to him first. It's unilateral love that brings unforced obedience. God's grace encourages and empowers us to constantly and consistently battle sin and temptation. It's it's the fuel of grace that keeps us running and persevering and pursuing. As Spurgeon says elsewhere, the saints will persevere in holiness because God perseveres in grace. Amen for that. The gospel then is God's glad tidings of unilateral love and unmerited favor. That it's the grace that meets us where we are and that takes us to where we need to be. I like the words of Martin Luther when he says, God's grace indeed does something strong and mighty and active in the soul. It is not something that lies inert on our souls as the dream preachers pretend, something that slumbers or is born about just as a painted board bears its colors. No, not thus. It carries, it leads, it drives, it draws, it travels, it does everything in a man. That's the grace of God. It does everything. The grace that says that you cannot out me. I've done more than you can ever know. See, the thing I think I want to also express to you tonight is just that unforced obedience will come out of unilateral love is just this, that you can never, ever, ever out the grace of God. You can never out the coverage of God's forgiveness. It does not matter from where you have come or from how deep of a rut that you have come from. You cannot out the salvation that God offers. It is eternally, eternally powerful to save you. As it says in the Bible, I think it's Hebrews, where it says that God is able to save to the uttermost. Or Isaiah, where it says that he is mighty to save. This is your God. And this is why we rejoice. Because as messed up as we are, as, as, as messed up as we are and as sinful as we might continue to be, as discouraged as we sometimes can get, the grace of God just keeps on giving. As it says in John 1.16, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Or that's literally grace upon grace upon grace upon grace ad infinitum. Grace upon grace. This is what we receive from God. 
Grace that gives and gives and propels us to keep living and it keeps, it keeps us breathing and keeps us serving. And no matter how many times we stumble and fall flat on our faces, we can get up again. Because God is a gracious God. He is a God of those who stumble and fall, of those who are outcasts, of those who are social pariahs. As it says in Proverbs 24.16, For the righteous fall seven times and rises again. And you could add there, because of the grace of God. Or Job 5.19, he will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch, shall touch you. Excuse me. This is the wonder-working power of God. He says, I love you. You who are his enemies, you who might have had no business with God otherwise, he says, you are mine and I love you. And that's where obedience is born. That's where repentance is first started, first initiated. And the amazing, wondrous, unilateral love of God, which spurs us to repentance, to obedience, to love, to service. And we are kept there by that amazing grace of God. As Martin Luther said again, the grace that carries and leads and drives and draws and travels with us. And as the song says, it brings us all the way home. Let's pray.